Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have Blair T. Kenny on the Zoom call, if you see it, and he's waiting in the wings on the audio call. Now, guys, I got on to Blair. I have a Facebook group and a page and all that, and I do all the social media marketing of the podcast. And I'm always searching around for other mob stuff, and there's a Facebook page out there called Today in Rochester Mafia History. So I looked, and the main person that posted on it was Blair T. Kenny, and he has books about the Rochester mob. And I thought, hey, this is a guy I need to talk to. So welcome, Blair. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And tell us a little bit about your books and how you got into this, maybe, and your Facebook page, just kind of in general. Okay. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. I started researching about the Rochester mob probably maybe 10 years ago. I'm a retired teamster. I retired in 2012, and my original intent was to research and write something about the history of the Teamsters Union. And after I got into it a little bit, I discovered that there was a lot of mafia influence in the union. <laughs> and more than just a little influence, one of the three locals in Rochester was completely controlled by the mafia for more than 40 years. And they ended up shutting down that local completely because of mafia control. So anyway, I got talked into switching my focus from writing about the Teamsters to writing about the mafia by a friend of mine who was a newspaper editor. She had told me that there was much more interest in the mob stuff. So I ended up switching over my research and started researching just all mob stuff in Rochester. And after like two years, I put out a book called The Rochester Mob Wars, which was just basically an overview of everything they had done over a 40-year period that I accumulated from newspaper articles, court hearings, and Senate hearings. And then after that, that wasn't out too long. I got contacted by somebody who wanted me to write about them, and the guy turned out to be like a low-level mob associate. So being new at it, it was really weird because when I put the book out, I had no idea where this book was going. I'd never written anything, never sold anything like that. It just kind of took off. But anyway, after that, I put out this book called Life on the Edge about Benny Morganti. It was maybe 100 pages. Mm-hmm. Didn't give me enough information to put out anything more than that. And there's a lot of things he was really concerned about talking about. <laughs> anyway, so that went out, and then I started working on the prehistory of the mob because I really covered about a 40 year period, and the mob in Rochester is about 100 years old. It goes back to the early 1920s, and it's tied in with Megadino in Buffalo that far back. So I wrote this pretty thick book, like 350 page book about uh, the Black Hand, which was the early mob guys. Mm-hmm. Prohibit during prohibition times and actually a little before that. And shortly after that, I got contacted by Tommy Taylor, who was one of the mob boss's bodyguards. He was also responsible. He served 20 years for killing John Fiorino. He hired Mad Dog Sullivan to kill Fiorino during the mob wars. He was considered the C team. So he contacted me through Frank Alloy, who is an attorney. And Frank Alloy is the author of The Hammer Conspiracies. 
And Frank had done some appellate work for Tommy Taylor, so they knew each other. So anyway, they both contacted me and asked if I would write Tommy's story. Tommy wanted to tell his story, <laughs> which was probably the most interesting thing I've done, was work with him. And we put out a book called Enter the Sea Team. It's Tommy Taylor and Tommy Torpy. It was the two bodyguards of Sammy Gingillo. And they were both in the car when Sammy died, when his car got blown up. So he's got a pretty fascinating story. And then after that, I I, put out, I just recently, last year, I put out a book called Teamsters Local 398, Lifetime Affiliation with the Mafia. And I'm trying to take it back to tie the Teamsters back in. And that's a more elaborate story than the one chapter I had originally done. So, so you got back to the Teamsters finally in the end. Yeah, I eventually would like to write a good history about them, separate from the mob stuff. But right now, this has got me sucked in. Yeah. You mentioned the C-Team, and that's what I found interesting when I did a little bit about Dominic Tadeo before, who was a mob guy that's in the penitentiary and just got out down in Florida. I believe he moved to Florida, right? Yeah, I think he's still in jail now, though. He was supposed to be out and move in with his mother in my neighborhood. But as far as I know, that with his escape charge, he's still in jail. That's right. So so they had this mob war, and they had the A team, the B team, and the C team. (laughs) Can you explain what that means? I know it's probably convoluted. Well, not really. I mean... It takes a little bit of explaining to back it up. I could give you a short history of that, okay, of how yeah. it all evolved. There was a takeover of the leadership in the mafia in 1964. And Frank Valeni, who was a, a mob guy from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, came to Rochester and basically took over the mafia and started lining up all the gamblers. Well, they had a mob boss here. His name was Jake Russo. And he disappeared. Presumably, they murdered him. And shortly thereafter, Frank Valenti made it known that he was the person to see in town for all gambling and mob-related activities. Made it known pretty far and wide. And then after that, they got heavily involved in lining up all the gambling activities in Rochester which meant that they were forcing everybody to pay big and pay for everything they did, whether it was card games or or numbers running. And there was resistors. They killed a few people. There was a murder in 1965 of one of the gamblers. They killed another guy in 1967, John Cavagrotti. He was a bookie. They took over his business. I don't know all the details of that. They killed a guy in 69. They killed one of their own guys early 1970. So there, there was just a lot of attention on these guys. Really? So, and so I, this I know was... you wanted to know a little bit about the Columbus Day bombings, and that's how the, yeah. the Columbus yeah. Day bombings came about in 1970 because of all this attention was being on, on these guys for several murders. And the BSIC was also in Rochester investigating organized crime and their influence on labor unions and gambling. So what they did was they would call people in that were known gamblers and they'd force them to testify 
They call in suspected mob guys and try to get them to testify. So anyway, there was, well, I'm kind of mixing things up a little, but in succession of things, the current boss there was Frank Valeni, and he came up with a very elaborate scheme to throw the attention off themselves, and that was the Columbus Day bombings. And on Columbus Day in 1970, they bombed like five places all in the same day. They bombed the federal building, the courthouse. They bombed the church. They bombed somebody's home. And the idea was to get the attention off themselves and kind of scare the whole city into thinking they had radical terrorists or there was some other kind of big problem they needed to put, draw their attention to instead of the mob. And it really actually worked <laughs> because they didn't discover who actually did them bombs for like five years when they had an informant from something else and started going back in time. And that's how they discovered a lot of things. Mm. That's how they discovered about the hammer, the Macero murder as well. So it was a pretty effective way to throw attention off themselves. But in 1972, the underlings of Frank Valeni decided to overthrow Frank and oust him. He was the big boss, and they got rid of him in 72, and they wanted to kill him. And apparently they were told by some other, I don't know if it was the Mafia Commission, that they could not kill Frank Valeni. So they killed his bodyguard and driver, Don Chirico, instead as a message for him to step down and leave town. And effectively, he did that. He was getting older, and he left town. And these new guys took over in 1972. And then, <laughs> getting back to the timeline there, in 1973, they killed one of their own guys, Dominic Macero. And nobody knew about it in, for a couple of years. When they turned this informant in 75, and they found out about this murder. And this murder is what facilitated the mob wars because the hierarchy of the mob was charged with murder of Jimmy the Hammer and then was placed in prison in 1976. So they got the boss, the underboss, the consigliori, and the two mob captains and the trigger man were put in prison for lengthy, would have been life, 25 to life in 1976. Well, what ended up happening was they were in jail for approximately a year, and they found out that the police department lied and fabricated evidence, and they were due to be released. So when they were going to get out, the guys who were in charge at the time, did not want to relinquish control of uh, the mob. And that's where the mob war really started at that time. Very, very complicated and very, a very intense story. I mean, every bit of it. I mean, they had killed Jimmy the Hammer Macero, but the only reason that they found out about it was two of the participants turned government informant. Well, they could not prosecute them guys with the word of a participant. They needed a independent, what is that word, corroboration? Corroborated or whatever, witness, yeah. Which they did not have. 
at the time. And they desperately wanted to put these mob guys in prison. So they had a couple of police detectives fabricate notes saying that they were watching a home where a, a meeting took place where they planned the murder. Mm-hmm. And there was supposed to be two of them. And then they had fabricated some other stuff. They fabricated testimony. They changed lie detector tests. They did a lot of stuff to prosecute these guys. And then after they were in prison for probably a year, a little more than a year, one of the detectives kind of developed a conscience. And <laughs> you hate that when somebody develops a conscience later on after you've been involved you know, in so, something. <laughs> so he spills, he spills his guts and they have to totally overturn all the convictions and let the guys out. Yeah. So in the meantime, somebody else had been running the mob in Rochester for about a year and they had placed their own guy in charge. So they had this big meeting at uh, one of the famous restaurants, and they were telling them, we're not happy with the way you've been running it for the last nine months. These guys are due to get out. Your term as acting boss is done with. And they outright refused. I don't know what the exact words were or whatever, but what ended up happening was John Fiorino, one of the head guys from the A-team, slugged the guy from the other side, Right in the head, knocked him off the bar stool, and they beat up a couple of the guys. One of the guys stuck a loaded pistol in somebody else's mouth, threatened to blow his head off while they were beating the other guys up. And they told him, you're done. It wasn't optional. You don't get to stay as boss, you know. So that faction of people kind of went into hiding, and that was like the B team. People that were loyal to Tommy Didio. And didn't want to give up control. So they had intentions of taking over the whole thing for themselves. And it just wasn't going to be. I see. Okay, I see. Now, the guys got put in jail. They got out. They wanted to retake control of the mob. They did. And they became the A-team. And then the guys they displaced who had been temporarily running everything or now become the B-team. Okay, I got you. Now, the B-team continues like a little guerrilla warfare against the A-team, I believe, don't they? Yeah, terrible. I mean, they went into hiding, so it was definitely guerrilla warfare. They began blowing up the gambling parlors, which was the source of revenue for the Mm A-team. They tried to hit them in the pocketbook, and then they immediately started planning on killing some of their guys. And Sammy G was who they came up with killing. He was the underboss. And he was very visible, too. They figured he was the easiest one to kill. So they went after him and made several attempts after he got released from prison in January. They immediately started trying to kill him. I think there was at least three bomb explosions or three attempts on his life before they actually got him. So, yeah. So now where does the C team come in? Who was the C team? Well, the B team went to prison. The majority of the B team went to prison in 1980. They convicted all them guys of weapons and conspiracy charges. Not specifically for killing Sammy G, although they did kill Sammy G. They originally charged a few guys with that murder and then withdrew those charges and convicted them of weapons and conspiracy. And two of the guys got like 40 years anyway, although they weren't specifically charged with a murder. And then that took out most of those B-team guys. 
But then the C team was basically Tommy Torpy and Tommy Taylor, the two bodyguards of Samage and Joel. They're two Irish guys. They've been around for 20 years or so, but Sammy died in 1978. They threatened the two Toms, and those two ended up hiring uh, Mad Dog Sullivan from New York City to kill John Fiorino, who was like mob captain at the time. Kind of like a preemptive strike, I guess you would call it. <laughs> and they considered them guys the C team. So they both went to prison. <laughs> Blair, that's a that is a crazy story. I know it was. I couldn't remember all the details, but that's. Uh... <laughs> and then, like I said, I ended up meeting Tommy Taylor through Frank Alloy. And when we were writing the book, I talked to him practically every day on the phone for about uh-huh. an hour uh-huh. while we were doing it. And then after that, I talked to him about once a week. He was a very <laughs> nice guy. You know, mm-hmm. when I knew him, he was probably 80 years old. He just passed away about two years ago. Mm-hmm. But we talked regularly, and he just told me all kinds of stuff. <laughs> that seems hard to believe, but yeah. Well, you, that's makes for great books. So, guys, you got to get these books. There'll be links down below, as I said before, for all these books: the Rochester Mob Wars and the shorter one. What was the shorter one's name? Enter the C Team was the book about Enter, Tommy Enter, Taylor. The, Enter the C Team was Tommy Taylor. So. You got to get these books. So Blair T. Kenny, I really appreciate you coming on the show. So- <laughs> books are all on Amazon. I do have a website called RochesterBobWars.com besides my Facebook page. And there is another Facebook page called the Rochester, Rochester Crime Family. I do not run it, but it has like 6,000 people in it. So there's a okay. huge interest. And this, these are local people. I have a book about the Black Hand that I'm hoping would eventually gain a little national interest because it was similar everywhere in the country. Yeah, that's true. No, I appreciate you having me on, and hopefully this opens up a few doors on, uh, you know, outside of Rochester. Yeah, well, that's the key, Blair, is when you're in a small city and from a small family, you got to, like, get your word out and get the message out and then you'll start getting some interest in it on a national basis. It's John Gotti. So many people are interested in the New York City mob. Oh, my God. And we have such a unique story. I know. And and it's relatively unknown. And it it rivals most of the other stories as well. It does. It does. I know. It does. It does. It just John Gotti, John Gotti, John Gotti. (laughs) That's all I I got to say. What are you going to read about John Gotti? I know. I know. You'd think they'd be sick of that guy by now, but. Apparently, they don't seem to be. I just keep plugging away and <laughs> got Michael Franchise and Sammy the Bull. But, of course, they're real close to John Gotti. So <laughs> what people don't realize, too, is Rochester was tied in the Buffalo, like I said, since the early 1920s. And Stefano Megadino was one of the original commission members. Yeah. In 1931, when they formed the Mob Commission, it was the five New York City family heads, El Capone and Stefano Megadino. So we kind of had representation since the early 20s. I guess I'm curious about one other thing. I never asked the question. How did that John LaRocca in Pittsburgh, did this Frank Valenti, when he went up, was he like a free agent or did he pay tribute or was he kind of under LaRocca in Pittsburgh at the time? John LaRocca was obviously the boss in Pittsburgh at the time. 
And I did some research on this years ago, and I don't remember all the details, but it's my understanding that it was either LaRocca or his underling was going to be imprisoned for something. And Valenti was supposed to take over in Pittsburgh. And then at the last minute, the guy never went to jail. So rather than screwing him out of a position, they'd set him up somewhere else. And the other thing was Frank Valenti's brother, Stanley, was married to one of the mob guy's daughter, Repepi or something like that. Does that sound familiar to you? No, not really, but there's so many. And one of the, I think that may be the underboss or one of the smaller guys, they were married into the family. Yeah, okay. And Frank Valenti's history goes back in Pittsburgh to the 40s when he was charged with a couple of murders in like mm-hmm. 1946. So he had a long history there before he even came here. Interesting. All right, Blair T. Kenny, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, Thank you for having me. So, guys, don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there. And if you are a service veteran and you have PTSD or you have a problem with that, go to the VA website and get that hotline. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, whether you're in the Army or not or military or not, look for our friend Anthony Ruggiano, who's been on the show. He has a treatment center business down in Florida, and if you go to his website or his YouTube page, you'll find a hotline number that he's got. And so you could maybe end up getting uh, Anthony Ruggiano as your counselor and go down to Florida and, and go into treatment. So thanks a lot, guys. And I really appreciate you tuning in. And don't forget to like and subscribe and maybe give me a review every now and then. Thanks, guys.